After I did one vintage, I was the only one left of the team and eventually uh, became the winemaker in charge of the cellar and appointed two youngsters. Uh, so in my second harvest, between the three of us, we had one vintage of experience. So that was... Uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> it's quite auspicious. It was a huge uh, challenge. But, you know, they were really good guys. One was Jacques Borman, and the other one was uh, Mike Dobrovich, who really put Moldebosch on, his, on the map. Hello, and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I'm David Clark. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we are going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. XAnimo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, xanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. Or should I say what we normally do? The ANC government, led by President Ramaphosa, has in their wisdom decided to reinstate prohibition and has also reinstated a curfew from 9pm every night. We can't sell wine at the moment, so if you find this podcast valuable or you would like to support us in this time of turmoil, please consider buying an XNMO Wine Co. Trucker Cap, pictures of which can be found on our Instagram page. They are 300 rand each, including delivery to anywhere within South Africa. Today on the podcast, we have Johan Malan, Director of Wine at the historic Simonsach Estate in Stellenbosch. As you will hear in this episode, Johan is very easy to talk to, humble, and has rather infectious giggle. While he is justifiably proud of what Simonsik has achieved over the years, he is very far from resting on his laurels, as exhibited by the Grapesmith wines we reference. Simonsik is one of the grand old names in Stellenbosch, whose reputation was set in motion by Johann's father, Franz, an incredibly important person in the development of Stellenbosch as a premium wine area, the estate system, and wine tourism in South Africa. I asked Johan on the podcast because both Cathy van Sael, MW, and Michael Fridgen on previous podcasts referenced Simon Sirk's and especially Franz's work in setting up the Stellenbosch wine route, the first of its kind in South Africa, and helped pave the way for quality-minded producers that has eventually led to the fine wine revolution the country has experienced over the last 10 to 15 years. While Simon Sirk is probably best known to most domestic wine drinkers as the pioneers of traditional method sparkling wine, with their wine, Carps of Foncle, they also produce important Chenin Blanc and Pinotage wines. I think this is one of the most important podcast episodes I've done so far. Simon Suk may no longer command the column inches it once did, but it is and will forever remain one of the most important wine estates in South Africa. Franz and Johan Milan have positively affected the reputation of Stellenbosch, helping shift the focus from the volume producers based in Pahl. Virtually every single top wine producer in South Africa today has the Milans of Simonsuk, at least in part, to thank for the route to market they helped envision, create, and curate from the 1970s to the 1990s. I give you Johan Milan. I'm here with Johan Milan. Johan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Uh, and your side, David? Yeah, very well, thank you. Well, as well as can be. Um, <laughs> I'd like to be able to sell some wine and... Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, uh, I think we, we, there are a lot of ifs and buts uh, connect to that question. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, for those who don't know, who might not necessarily know um, a great deal about you, maybe uh, tell us about Simon Suck and, and your life in wine so far. Okay, well, Simon Suck is a, a family-owned uh, wine estate 
goes back to 1942 when my uh, maternal grandfather, who was a Fannikerk, uh, bought the property and um, started farming there. Before that time, he was on the farm Knoruk, up against the Simonsburg, farming with his brother. And uh, so at that stage, he decided to go on his own. And uh, he only had two daughters. So my mother got married to my father, who was also from a wine farm, but in the Wellington district. So he grew up uh, on a wine farm called Hexberg in uh, Wellington. And after school, well, he went to a school in Cape Town, not in Wellington. Mm-hmm. And um, then he uh, studied viticulture and enology at Stellenbosch University and actually uh, went on to do his master's degree in enology. And when he got married, he um, took over the running of the farm from his father-in-law. And that was 1953. Then um, uh, wine was made in bulk to the merchants. Uh, but in 1964, he bought a second property, which had the wonderful name of Hillbrow. And one of our uh, neighbors was Senator Paul Sauer of Canoncorp. And he said to him, France, you can't have a farm in Stellenbosch called Hillbrow. They must change the name. So he came up with Simon Sich, which means uh, Simon's View, uh, named after the beautiful Simonsburg uh, Mountain. And um, then also in 64, he modernized the cellar. And, you know, it was the beginning of cold fermentation. And he installed new steel tanks and uh, a cooling plant because up to, he told me that they used to cool the fermentations with uh, boral water which was then run back into the the farm dam but this was uh, uh, 64 he installed a big carrier plant so that he could refrigerate the water and um, that was supposed to be the most modern estate seller in south africa at the time according to the newspaper clippings i have a few years later, when he thought he had a really, really good seller of wine, he uh, was expecting to receive some bonuses from the big merchants because there was the minimum good wine price uh, set by the KWV, and uh, you're not allowed to sell wine at, at a price lower than that. But um, after the uh, buyers tasted, he, he wasn't offered any uh, bonus for the higher quality obviously arising from his uh, investment in cold fermentation. Mm-hmm. So and then he realized that he has to make his own price and add value. So the first Simons of wine was bottled in 1968, a Stien, a Claret Blanche, and a Riesling. So after that, he realized that it's much easier to sell the wine, or to make the wine, excuse me, than to sell it. So uh, it was quite a tough job because everything was totally controlled by the the big merchants like SFW, uh, Distillers Corporation, KWV was only on exports, and um, Union Wine was uh, also there. So apart from those people, there were not that many big buyers. And uh, on top of that, they also controlled large uh, liquor store chains like Western Province Cellars. So it was a tough job to to get your wine listed in the big re- uh, retailers, but also in restaurants and so on. And um, as as part of the struggle to get started, uh, a newsletter, which uh, the first paragraph we can all still recite, and um, it went something like, "If you lived in France, you would have 
driven out to your closest wine cellar and bought your wine directly from the producer. But because uh, this is not possible, we offer you the vineyard to the table service. So that was around about 1968-69. And um, interestingly, the, the first three wines were all white wines. And he sold it for the incredible price of six rand for a case of 12. Mm. Um, so 50 cents a bottle. And uh, after a year, I think he hasn't uh, sold much. And uh, really started to look at uh, other options. I just have to say that my mother was uh, doing the labeling inside the house. So we had really humble and small beginnings. Uh, and, and, you know, the story goes on uh, from there, but we can talk about that um, a bit later. My own career history in, in, the, in the wine business, obviously I was born on the estate and I grew up there. And uh, it's something that eventually you do get involved in things and it, you get interested in it. And we were not really given pocket money. So I remember... After school, I used to come home in harvest and then go and pick grapes in the vineyard uh, where we had a little card numbered with blocks numbered from one to a hundred. And for every uh, basket, we, we still used some cane baskets to pick the grapes. Uh, you got there was a little hole made into the paper. So, um, and if you uh, basically it worked out if you had a hundred baskets. Um, that was two rand fifty, so it was really hard work in the heat of summer. Um, but uh, obviously, the laborers and the farm people always used to help this little kid of uh, ten or eleven or twelve years old. But I think that's a kind of introduction that you get, and that's uh, one of my earliest memories was to uh, how I picked grapes uh, in the afternoons after school. And then after school, I obviously did military service, wanted to get that behind me as quickly as possible. It was just uh, 12 months in those days. But um, while I was in the army, they extended it to two years. So fortunately, we already had uh, applied for the university and places in residences and so on. So we were let out with the threat that if you don't pass, you go back to the army. So I was a good student. <laughs> good incentive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, I did consider other uh, careers because you can't just take it for granted that it will be uh, agriculture and, and winemaking. But in the end, uh, I've, I've been interested in science and chemistry and biology and things like that. So. Uh, also, seeing my father and, uh, you know, how much pleasure and enjoyment he had of building up the business. Uh, so eventually I went to Stellenbosch University to study a BSc with viticulture and uh, enology. So when I finished in 1981, the idea was that I wanted to go and work overseas for a vintage uh, somewhere, maybe uh, California. And But I had a, a, a good friend. Uh, who was also studying that, but uh, he was a year behind me. And I decided to, to work in, uh, at, at the farm for, for that year until he graduates at the end of the next year. And then we would go together. It was a big uh, looking back. Um, and because when I joined the, 
the, the farm. I was first working in the vineyards, doing um, work on the irrigation and the evaporation of water and so on to get better scientific background to the irrigation. And um, then at some stage, I uh, moved into the cellar. But there were two senior winemakers, so I was maybe like quality control, laboratory analysis. And then while I was waiting for my friend, Louis, and he uh, eventually, before that year finished, both the other guys resigned, you know, um, and moved on to, to better things. And uh, all of a sudden, after I did one vintage, I was the only one left of the team and eventually uh, became the winemaker in charge of the cellar and we appointed two youngsters. Uh, so in my second harvest, between the three of us, we had one vintage of experience. So that was... It's quite auspicious. It was a huge uh, challenge, but, you know, they were really good guys. One was Jacques Borman and the other one was uh, Mike Dobrovich, who really put... Moldebosch on his on the map, so that's that's the early part of my uh, how I got involved. Hmm. Um, Jacques Borman being Rhiannon Borman's father. Uh, that's right. Yes. Moldebosch and before that, though, he's out in Franschuk, was he? That's right. Then then he left us to go to to go to Lamotte in uh, Franschuk within yeah. one year. And was your father still around at this point? Oh yes, very much so. He uh, he would come into the cellar and taste the young wines, and together we would uh, taste it. So it was really a good period for me when he handed over and also taught me a lot about uh, the ex- you know where all these experience over many years. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, like working side by side, and he was he was a quite a, a tough boss. You can ask uh, the other winemakers who worked with him. But tough implant, but uh, fair in his, his judgment. And just a quick one. With the Reese thing that um, you said that um, in 68 there was um, Stian, Clarette Blanche and Riesling, was that Cape Riesling or was that... Uh, Cape Riesling, yes. Yeah, so Cruchon Blanc. That's right, yes. Yeah, okay. That was seen as the noble variety of that time. Okay. It normally got a slight premium above Chenin Blanc because, yeah, I think the big label or brand was Niederberg Paul Riesling at the time. And interesting, there was no wine of origin legislation in those days. Uh, a big winery like Niederberg was uh, labeled as an estate because you could do it. There was absolutely no control. And uh, that was also one of the efforts that my father was involved in to get the wine of origin and the Estate Wine Producers Association to get that started, to offer some protection and give them a voice with the authorities. So there were a lot of very tough battles fought with the big merchants because they saw these youngsters and these uh, small wineries as a, as a big threat. So uh, in 1973 was when the wine of origin legislation was finally published and uh, put into action with the Wine and Spirit Board and the certification system. What was the size of, or what was the plantings of Simon Sack when you took over? Has it, has it changed drastically from, from then till now, or is it relatively the same size? Or? Um, you know, in the early days, we, we still had quotas. So uh, we were 
limited in terms of how much uh, we could produce and we had more land than we could actually we had quota for so okay. for many years how did those quotas um, get calculated I think it was assigned to a, sp a specific sector or Morgan as it was called in those days and uh, that was determined by uh, you know the authorities I don't know if the KWV they had legal rights to to control these things so I think the quota was basically under their authority and they took you know they had to control the quota and um, let's say you had uh, a hundred hectare farm and you had a, a thousand ton quota if you went over it you had to pay like a, a penalty or a levy which would have gone into a, a fund and that fund would have been used to get rid of the surplus so that was that's how i remember it it might yeah. be uh, it's, it's, it's a long time ago yeah it was so eventually the abolished the quotas were about how much you could produce, not the minimum you were to produce. Yes. yes. So I think there was a, a measure uh, to say that if you have so many hectares, you can only produce so much. But it, the other side of the coin is that if you bought land um, and it didn't have a quota, you couldn't produce wine on that land that you could certify. So it meant that you couldn't buy land in, for instance, in... Um, uh, Himmel and Arder, like uh, Tim Hamilton Russell did, and uh, make wine and certify it. So uh, that's why the first few vintages of of uh, Hamilton Russell were uncertified. Yeah, wow. Because it didn't have quota. Interesting. So, so this is the sort of the environment of when you took over, I guess. Or what? What? What had happened in between '73 and '81? Well. There were a couple of major changes. I think um, our first red wine came in 1970, which was a Pinotage. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that, um, you know, the first Pinotage was the Lanzarac, uh, 1959, I think. So it was quite soon after the first Pinotage was bottled uh, in the country. And I'm, I'm still curious to know why my father planted Pinotage, but we had virtually no Cabernet and, and Shiraz. Maybe it was because of that, suddenly Pinotage was on everybody's lips after they'd won the National uh, Red Wine Trophy. Okay. And um, so our first Cabernet and Merlot, uh, Cabernet and Shiraz only started in 1976, which was a bit later. But I'm digressing, but people didn't drink a lot of red wine in those days. So with this difficulty of, of selling the wines uh, and reaching the consumer, the idea came up with uh, my father and uh, Neil Joubert. They were really good friends and they traveled together a lot uh, to Europe and, and elsewhere. And on one of these trips in Burgundy, uh, he actually took us there years later and um, showed me where he, the idea came up. There was a sign that says Route du Vin and it was in, uh, in Burgundy and and more race on the knee. And he said to Neil, uh, why don't we start this in South Africa? And that's where the idea was born. And they came back, I think that was 1979, 70. Okay. And they uh, also uh, roped in uh, Spud Sperling of Delheim, who was already in the bottling their own wine for quite a few more years. And the three of them then set about to to get the wine route going. 
Um, Neil, your bear was from what what property? Spear. 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 Okay. Yes. They, the the story goes that they then sent letters to all the producers and cooperatives and also the growers so that they could get this wine route off the ground. After a few weeks, you know, it was still the the normal post box mail. Um, yes. They got only one reply. So it wasn't met with a huge amount of enthusiasm. Um, but then they got in their cars and drove out to, to meet everyone and told them the story about it and how we're going to sell wine directly from your cellar door. Um, I don't think they ever realized that this was tourism and this was what it was um, also bringing people to the farms. It, it developed from the f desire to sell wine directly to the consumer. So 1971, the Stellenbosch wine route was launched and I can't remember how many members it had, but um, next year it will celebrate its 50th anniversary. Yeah. And it was also the first wine route in the country. So the, the concept was really, uh, you know, it, it was visionary um, because nowadays a lot of other countries and regions in South Africa, everybody's got a wine route and also other tourist routes that was not even on the cards in the in the early 70s. That started in 1971 and obviously you said it was a sort of a slow start in terms of the response to it. How did the wine of origin legislation impact or did it not impact the, the wine route um, business? Well firstly the wine route had the, the first problem that the authorities said you're only allowed, can you believe it, to to buy a case of nine liters per customer. You couldn't buy one bottle. Oh, right. So <laughs> you could, you, could you buy two <laughs> cases or is it just nine liters? That's yes, it. yes. Yeah. You, could buy, you could buy as many cases as you want, but it okay. had to be a unit of nine liters. It's a nine liter um, minimum. At, yes. And that was uh, uh, also a battle just to get past that uh, initially uh, what, you know, you had to fill in a form that went to the KW because this this guy name and address, street address, um, bought this wine and then it had to be submitted. So I had control over everything, even the wine that you were selling and who you were selling it to. So we quickly, if Mr. A buys six bottles and Mr. B buys six bottles, that makes up one case. So we could we could uh, navigate around that. I think that's that was quite funny. They were not allowed to put up signs along the Stellenbosch wine route to, to tell people where to go. You know, there were no road signs, so it was also not allowed. They had a little map and a booklet, I think. But um, so they were writing letters and battling tremendously with the authorities until they came up with the idea in those days the, the Cape province still had an administrator. And uh, they invited him over from Cape Town and uh, drove him out to, to Stellenbosch. And uh, the first stop, they explained to him what the, the problem is. They gave him some, uh, some cups of Funkel to drink. And uh, th then they loaded him in the, in the bucket to go up from Simonsoch up to Delheim. And before they got to Delheim, I said, bugger this, put up the signs. I see what you're battling with, sir. <laughs> So um, uh, it was uh, a good way to to get around all the red tape. Yeah, it's not what um, you know, it's who you know, isn't it, a lot of the time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then um, 
And so what, what, in what state was the winery and the vineyards in and there was the winery in 1981 when you took over? What did you, what did you arrive to? Was the winery thriving and was that? You know, it was, it was still very primitive, I would say, or very far removed from, from what things are nowadays because most growers were making wine to, to sell in bulk. That uh, meant that uh, the production of yield per hectare was was really important. So we grew varieties like uh, um, Claret Blanche, which I mentioned, but it was late ripening. We had a lot of Palomino, which was a real bulk wine volume producer. And I always say the the, the worst variety I ever worked with was the Palomino. Oh, really? Um, oh, it, because it's so slippery. Mm. It's 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 got a, a lot of pectins and it it's incredibly difficult in the cellar because you can't press it too hard then it squirts out the press and it's sticky and messy all over the place mm. and it's got big bunches so it 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 comes in really fast mm. and it was always a battle between the farm manager and the team to see if they can if they can overload the cellar so that. You, we couldn't keep up, and that would make their day, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> that was the highlight of the harvest for them. If they could pick uh, Franz Driver, as it was called, to block up the cellar. So we got clever. We used to pick something else in the mornings and tell them they can start in the afternoon. And then before we get clogged up, uh, it's closing time, and, and we can work away this, this uh, massive amount of grapes. But oof, fortunately, it's interesting that uh, a variety synonymous with um, with Spain had its name as French grape uh, in yes. in South Africa. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, I must. I wonder if somebody's got that that explanation somewhere. Yeah, maybe Joanne. Um, um, uh, curious. Yeah, would would have that. So, so when you arrived in eighty one, there was still a lot of Palmino. There was still a lot of. Um, Claret Blanche, uh, obviously you mentioned Pinotage. Mm. What else was planted? Okay, maybe maybe take it a few steps back again. Yeah, and uh, then yeah, yeah. in the 70s, you know, this uh, uh, irritation or impatience with uh, limited choice uh, became a big issue. And during the 70s, the, the, uh, the authorities, Nit um, for Bay, I started importing more and more of the classic grape varieties like Rhine Riesling or Weiser Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I think Merlot came in in those days, Gewürztraminer, uh, a lot of German varieties because I, th I always say that my father's generation was, was a lot more German influenced because um, a lot of people studied and we had uh, the Niederberg um, Johan Grauer, you had Willi Hacker at KWV, Spatz Perling. They were all uh, German, uh, trained with German philosophy and uh, outlook on, on winemaking. So a lot of German varieties also arrived here. We had Kerner, we had uh, Scheuerebe, and, and all of those things, my father was always a, the innovator who wanted to do something new and to be the first to do something. So many of these varieties were then planted and it had to go under that label so that he could offer something different to his uh, customers. And, and a lot of that was still mail order in those days. 
so we had uh, a huge selection of grape varieties like um, Muscat, Ottonel, Morio Muscat, etc. And each one had its own label. So oh, I think wow. when I arrived, I arrived here, we had 25 different grape varieties. And that didn't even include the important red ones like Merlot and Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. Uh, it was mainly white. And uh, but it, uh, at that time, um, he, he bottled the first Chardonnay at Simonsuch in 1978 from vines that were available in South Africa, but they had a lot of leaf roll. Not that much, much has changed uh, since then. Oh. But I still remember we had this uh, one hectare block of, of Chardonnay. It was the proper one, and um, it was uh, bottled in a flute hock bottle like a, a lot of the other white ones, typical uh, German hock bottle, and um, no wood at all. So the, the first memory or the first thing I did was in 1982, we bought a few uh, second row barrels and I, I made the Chardonnay in wood. And obviously you rub shoulders with uh, more experienced winemakers. And I heard, but they even ferment the Chardonnay in barrel and then leave it on the lease without sulfur. And that was like a complete discovery for me. You know, oh. it was, how can you make a wine without using any sulfur dioxide? And then I had the one and the control. And so learned about Chardonnay from nobody else could teach you. Nobody else had experience. So you had to test and trial and see what works. So, and, and obviously you don't want to make a big mess. You wanted to do something that uh, you could still sell at the end. So it was uh, oh. a little bit cautious. But um, by the time that the, the first cleaned up Chardonnay arrived in 1985, with the so-called virus-free, already had a, a few years of experience when the first uh, grapes were picked in 1988. And I still remember that very young vineyard, but... Um, we used quite a bit of uh, new Burgundian oak. The wine was absolutely beautiful. So, um, and that was when Chardonnay was in its baby shoes. It's amazing to think how how young Chardonnay is in South Africa in terms of as a variety. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I think pre pre eighty five there was very little, and only started kicking in from 1988 now what is that not even 40 years so uh, relatively young and with the Stellenbosch wine route obviously it's it's now a very different beast it's a very uh, there's lots of members it's a, it's probably the most significant wine route in South Africa how was that development through the 80s when you were in charge of um, or in charge of the estate Did, were you an active member of that uh, wine route or were you mostly focusing on... Yeah, the... yeah. I think my father was the chairman for, I don't know, 20 years or something for a very long time and with uh, together with Spot Sperling and uh, many other producers uh, in Stellenbosch, you know, the, the old family farms, all members, um, and they basically had to fund themselves with uh, levies and so on and they had a... Uh, a manager PR person in Stellenbosch and every year in in October we did the Stellenbosch food and wine festival because that was important to not only promote wine but but uh, the combination of food and wine and uh, Stellenbosch uh, what is the the English 
can't think it's ever had an English name. It's called the Feinproovers Gilde, which means the the um, gourmet guild of Stellenbosch. And they wanted to revive the old Cape recipes and way of cooking and food and so on. So uh, they would uh, there would be food stalls in the in the town hall. And uh, all the producers would have uh, a stall and you would serve your wine there on a Thursday, mainly for guests, and Friday and Saturday for, for the people. Uh, and uh, it was also quite a, a novel thing at the time that you could have so many wines under uh, one roof and you, could, uh, the, you had these little booklets, so you have a little a ticket and you give that and you get a taste of uh, that wine. So it promoted a lot of uh, people and introduced you know remember it's a student town so october is just before the exam so it's like a good way to have a last party before the exam start and um they didn't make it so uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i think you know the the, the food and wine festival and and of course the the, the stalamos wine route definitely had a it was a really nice place for young people to go because it was actually free you know you could either taste for free or just buy a glass for for a small amount of money and taste the wines and move on to the next place and these people all became uh, professional graduated people that were a big influence that it had on the consumption of wine in south africa and not uh, not only stellenbosch university uct in cape town uh, definitely it was within reach so uh, it made uh, wine accessible to a lot of people and they could try out many different wines which to, to find out what they actually liked. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, there's a couple of interesting points I want to pick up. I mean, before the Stellenbosch wine route, it wasn't a, a practice to go out to a winery and taste their wines and, and see what they had to offer. I mean, that just wasn't no, uh, an option, was it? Was it? No, nobody had, a, they had the facilities, you know. Yeah. It was, um, it was uh, a totally new idea. Mm. Um, that you could buy your wine directly from the, the winemaker. Mm. And uh, I think it created an, an opportunity for the small individual private winemaker to, to establish his own label. And maybe I should just uh, give a bit of context because at a time in the early 70s, it was probably 71, 72, we were not even bottling 10% of our wine and the other 90% was then sold in bulk to the to the big merchants but my father was in a lot of battles to get the wine and the wine of origin legislation legalized so they they fought to the nail with with these big merchants who always saw it as a as a threat mm. and uh, suddenly you had to have before you could put cabernet sauvignon on the label the first part of it, you had to, to start off with only 25% Cabernet. The other 75 could be Simzo, it could be uh, anything else. Um, so that was how low it started. Then it moved to 50 and 75. It took years. But anyway, he had a cellar full of wine. And then I said to him, your opposition to us, no, we're not going to buy that 90% of your wine. I remember, you know, it's like the wolf at the door. It was, uh, it was nearly... The end of it for us. Yeah, right. so uh, the, battle, the battle lines had been drawn. Yes, yeah. yes. So it <laughs> yeah. was, uh, it was um, a really tough, tough time with other innovations. He was actually the first one to introduce bag in the box in South Africa, long before other people started. 
it was a way of, he's always said that the Portuguese will buy a wine in bulk and then go and bottle it at home. Not the Portuguese, but the Italians and people in Europe. And that yes. was his idea with the bag in the box. So all in all, to, to find a way that he could sell his, his crop. So hmm. it was a really tough time. Yeah, it really it created a paradigm for, as you say, smaller producers to be viable in the market. I mean, otherwise, there was probably no other way to, to do it. And the other thing I wanted to, to pick up from what you've just said is I've always wondered, I mean, learning about South African wine and its history, and, and it is covered in a little bit of a cloud and mist and, and fog. Sometimes things aren't super clear. And especially as you go further and further back, the uh, the the, the, mem- the memories get a bit hazy, and uh, and the reasons for doing things aren't necessarily um, super clear. But I've always wondered why you know the KWV and, the, and Niederberg, so the two big historic names of South African wine, were based in Paul. But when I was learning about wine and learning about South African wine, Stellenbosch was always seen to be the centre of quality production. I think you've maybe just explained to me in a roundabout way and undeliberately or indeliberately, non-deliberately, I can't even think of the word, why the, the dual situation there, because in part, in a massive part, it seems, because of the Stellenbosch wine route, created the opportunity for, for smaller estate producers to, to concentrate on, on producing wine and selling it direct to consumer, thus getting the maximum amount of, uh, of benefit and, and return on investment. Uh, back into the winery and, and and the vineyards. Would you would you agree with that? Or yeah, I think uh, it it may not have been the Stellenbosch wine route only the Stellenbosch wine route. You know, I think also the the Estate Wine Producers Association created a platform for uh, private estates from other regions. You know, I think Baxburg has been around, and Sydney Back was a big friend of my father, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a lot of the advances and the the changes that they were um, negotiating for were done by uh, like that because they there was a new awakening for uh, the for wine in South Africa starting in, in that time. I think uh, maybe the uh, better uh, socio-economic conditions of a big population and so on. You know, I think in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, the, uh, the population definitely, the middle class got stronger and wine was one of the, the benefits uh, or the beneficiaries of that. So I think the time was also ripe. And the interesting thing is that our biggest selling wine in those early days were uh, our late harvest. So anything mm. with a bit of sugar and the stein category were big sellers. And typical of a, of a population or consumers that are relatively new to wine something with a bit of uh, sugar is easier to get used to and they then uh, progressed from there to to more uh, to drier wines to red wines and so on Mm -hmm. so uh, you know quite often i think it's very much uh, what's happening in south in a south african market at the at the moment when there's a, a growth in the the middle class and people with more expendable income and also uh, people who have never been exposed to wine, they now have the opportunity and to start with something with a bit of uh, sweetness and a bit of sugar. And um, I think uh, that will not last forever. It will change to something that for me is a very positive thing. The huge main market is taking to wine and we must 
not shy away from the fact that uh, something with a bit of sugar and a bit of residual is uh, perhaps the way to go. A bit of a gateway drug, so to speak. Oh, yes. And you mentioned, obviously, majority of wines being drunk were white wines back in the 70s and early 80s. When mm. Maybe talk us through the, the changes there, because certainly red wine is probably seem to be more of a premium product now and has done for the last sort of 10, 20 years, I would think. How did you experience that change? Yeah, I think the the market was probably about 90% white wine and 10% red uh, in those days and maybe later on uh, 80-20. It was a lot more difficult to sell to sell red wine. That change perhaps started from the, the early 80s when... The first Bordeaux blend was done by Valtamiant in 79 and uh, Merlis Rubicon started in 1980. And uh, I think the, the quality and the focus on red wine definitely started taking off from that point. Before that, you had the Zona Blooms, the, the Altos, Cadabli Rudeberg, Chateau Libertas, you know, that was uh, the kind of red wine, but it was uh, sort of branded wines and they had I think they were at a high level but the choice was much smaller mm. in those days and I think the the industry started to expand in terms of red wines only in the 80s because I think I think the first Merlot was the Overgaan Merlot that was bottled in 1982 you know so just that's even more recent than the Chardonnay so with the more focus on it uh, it definitely created a bigger demand Pinot Noir was also virtually unknown in South Africa. Uh, I think Murati bottled the Pinot, Pinot Noir for many years, but it wasn't really, you know, that made in a proper Pinot Noir. It was much fuller wine, if I remember. Okay. So then the first plant, Yemelin Artist, uh, kicked in. So an awareness of, of different types and styles of red wine basically started uh, uh, in the 80s and that was one thing in somewhere in the 70s people woke up and said oh red wine is the thing to drink so there was a so-called red wine crisis there was not enough to go around i always think that it had a huge influence uh, maybe specifically on the simon red wines because it it was important that you could make the red wine to the market really early so it was uh, almost to make it drinkable and when i arrived we had cabernets with 11 percent alcohol and uh, that was the first major change that i i think i instituted and that was uh, to, to make the red wines a bit more serious and and uh, lower the yields and increase the, the length of time on skins and and more extraction uh, longer time in wood and i remember that my father was one that was quite opposed to the idea mm. but he still allowed me to carry on which I'm but when eventually that uh, 1984 uh, Cabernet and the red wines went to bottle he was the first one to acknowledge that it, it was uh, the ones really good so uh, oh, he was happy for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was happy so uh, he didn't say no go back to the old old style and then uh, I think uh, the consumer also moved away from from their love of sweeter white wines and uh, the market for for more serious red wines and people started collecting red wines. Mm-hmm. So that followed and to the present day, you know, there's it's still 
expanding, I think, in terms of styles and choices and how wines are made nowadays. You know, it's it's not a, a cast in stone. It's it's a yeah. it's very dynamic, which is interesting and very stimulating. Seems like it's a bit more of a deliberate action these days than in past uh, generations, where it was a more of a sort of a, a all-in approach. Yeah, you you listen to the to the stories of the of the older generation, and they they would uh, they would plant a row of cabernet, but the, there's some sinzo at both ends because uh, you, I don't know if it uh, was intended for the birds to eat and not to eat the cabernet, but um, when they harvested it was all done together. So it was almost, it's like, it was like a field blend. And then in the cellar, you had one tin of acid and a smaller tin for the, for the meta, you know, the, the bisulfite. And uh, that was a very standard uh, recipe. And I think picking took place at a much earlier level. So the wines of the, the, the earlier years were above 12. But if you go even further back, you know, I think in the 60s, early 70s, there were some wines, our first pinotages with 14% alcohol. Um, and those wines are still with us today. They, they're actually quite exceptional. But they had 14% alcohol. Uh, but obviously, they were most of the time matured in in uh, big vats, you know, old stuckfarter, so no, uh, no oak influence as such or oak flavor. Mm. And um, they were known as uh, vena, which means that they've got heavy feet. Yes. So that's in the reference to the alcohol. But that, that also is, a, is a, a sign that it was picked at a high level of ripeness. And that is an important part of um, phenolic maturity and so on. But then there was almost this movement away from these wines in the later 70s, which I think was not always a, a good thing. And when South Africa started uh, exporting again, we were often uh, lambasted for making green wines. The tannins were green, the fruit was green and so on. What and do you think precipitated that change then at that time? I think for the wines to be more drinkable, maybe at an earlier age, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that you don't have to uh, sell it for 10 years before it becomes uh, drinkable. But um, I think that was done at the cost of physiological and phenolic ripeness, which led to the swing to almost at the end is that um, maybe over ripeness and the 15 alcohol yeah. was prominent. I think also influenced by. Uh, the Parker ratings and what's happened in uh, California. Yeah, sort of like a reactionary, an overreaction to what yeah. we're almost, you know. Yeah, we're, um, we're on the way back to the to the more elegant uh, wines with lower uh, lower alcohol. But I think this time it will be by keeping in mind all the other parameters. It's not only the alcohol of the wine, but it has to be properly ripe grapes and, and uh, not at the cost of, of ripeness and uh, maturity. Yeah, balance is key, for sure. You mentioned the increase in technology in the winery. What about viticulture in the, in the actual vineyards over sort of the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s? Was there much of a change in the vineyards in, in terms of the farming? I know the, the, the varietal makeup of the vineyards changed as you've mentioned, but in terms of a better understanding of how to farm vines and grapes, does that much change or was it more focused on, on what was happening in the winery? 
No, I, I think the, the huge advancement was made in terms of figuring out what varieties to plant on what uh, sites and soil types and not only sites and soil types but in in what regions in what areas and so on so uh, i think the i always think in my father's generation it was discovering everything that that was new and trying to to make wine from it so it was almost like diversification i think in, in our time we we strengthening our understanding of what we can do well or what does well in our soils i think the 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 work and the research that was done in terms of your resource potential of of a site and so on was was a big pointer that where you would get the best results in terms of wine quality if you plant your cabernet do it on on this site and sauvignon blanc would need something much cooler maybe higher altitude uh, south facing or maybe just a to totally different uh, region you know i think in in the long run we shouldn't be uh, making sauvignon blanc where we are you know maybe some really small pockets in stellenbosch they're doing it really well but in the long run it will be the specialist wine of of the regions where they've got the right uh, climate pinot noir the same thing so i think in that point we've got a much clearer understanding but you know, vineyard lasts uh, 25 or 35 years or longer. So we all had Sauvignon Blanc because the market needs or sells a lot of Sauvignon. Mm. And that means we we try to offer something where there's a demand. But if you ask me now, we've got other varieties that definitely um, give much better quality in, in our conditions, yeah. which we should pursue in the next few decades next phase become a lot more specialized i think of uh, if you already mentioned caps of when uh, when thinking of simon circuit so there's a bit of a uh, synonymous relationship maybe chat to us about how that came about also the story started on one of these trips to france and uh, my father went to champagne and the, his frustration was that he had great varieties that he could make a ship a steen a claret blanche and a and a Riesling, um, and then also maybe a, a late harvest style steen, and and that was about it. So it became, it was so limiting. And when he saw the how they make champagne, he got the idea, but why can't he do that in South Africa? But he only had Chenin Blanc. So in, in 1971, he made the first bottle fermented Meto Champenois, and he called it Carps of Funkel. Uh, it was before the days of Chardonnay and even Pinot Noir. So he used what was available and it was fermented in the bottle. Nobody else had experience and basically a lot of the the tools and the equipment he had to help manufacturers to, to build. Even the, the riddling racks, you know, he had a carpenter in Stellenbosch and he explained to him how to do it. But it was when the bottles were packed into these uh, racks. They were they were so shaky that it was almost a, a danger to go in there because they had very <laughs> thin and skinny legs. So uh, I don't know why it just didn't import from uh, France in the first place. But nobody knew, you know, it was a, a different time. 
Initially, it was only done every second year. Because we couldn't call it champagne, he thought that he would kick up a funkel. Now, his idea was initially that if a second person comes along, he would also call it Kaapse funkel, almost like Kaap Klasik is today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took about 10 years before um, Barsendal came along. And by that time, Kaapse funkel was doing very nicely, thank you. And... Um, uh, so it was established, and so it was the, the Simon Sarkaps of Funkel uh, brand. And um, it was uh, only from about 1980 that we started doing it uh, every year. So it was almost more like a Loire style wine. I just remember as a school kid, you know, when my father would open a bottle, I always thought, gee, you know, this has got a lot of acidity and I think that drove me to to make to the style we are still doing today is to have a bit more broadness on the palate and that's why in 1987 I introduced the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay uh, as the two varieties Mm -hmm. and uh, to get it closer to the proper French Champagne Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why there's so much Pinominia planted in Champagne and nothing in South Africa. So in the early 90s, we planted a small vineyard. And uh, 1997, exactly 10 years later, uh, the Carps of Funkel included all three varieties, or the main varieties. There are a few others as well. But also, uh, we couldn't even put Method Champenoise on on the bottle, on the label. So at that stage... Sparkling wine or champagne, as the people called it in South Africa, that they would drink at weddings and so on, were, were all uh, vandu, you know, sweet stuff in those flat cook glasses. And uh, all of a sudden, Simon's at the Carps of Funkel, and it was selling, it was the most expensive wine or white wine in the country at that stage, and it was uh, three rand a bottle. So he didn't do all this trouble and decided to, to give it away. Um, so it was quite expensive. So every bottle had a, a single bottle box. And inside there was a brochure with photographs and pictures of why this is so much more expensive and because the whole process. But it was a, that was a, a real uphill battle almost to establish something that people don't think why they should pay more for a wine with some bubbles in it. But I think we've come a long way. Yeah, that's, a, that's um, quite, a, quite a premium product in those days, I'm sure. In, in 1987, when I changed the, the composition of the Carps of Funkel, it was starting from scratch again in terms of what is a good cuvee? You know, how do yeah. you judge it? And, and very little literature was actually available, uh, but, and it was actually in French all the time and I had lots of articles translated at Stellamos University just to from French magazines about uh, champagne so that I could learn a bit more and it was very uh, difficult and uh, so in, in 1988 I thought well I've got one tank of Pinot one tank of Chardonnay so it can not really teach me a lot so I decided to phone up the other guys who were making sparkling or method champenoise in those days mm. so we had a base wine tasting in the cellar and around a plastic table and um i think it was achim von arnhem and jeff greer and uh, you know a real jacques kruger of um, blau club and it was a handful of guys but it was amazing that 
nobody had any secrets. You know, they were all so eager to learn that they were all sharing their knowledge with no limitations. And that was a, a huge step forward. So we repeated it the next few years and then eventually we said, but we have to formalize this. So we, we started the, the Cup Classic Producers Association and the two first things that we did is we said we need a name for this style of wine, like they have Cava in, in Spain and and yes. French Champagne and, and French so, uh, and we, yeah, yeah. Mm. So we we kicked around the names and obviously it's Method Traditionnel, Method uh, Classique, and uh, because it's from the Cape, uh, eventually the we came up with uh, Method Cup Classic or just Cup Classic. And uh, the story is that uh, the association was launched in Mbaban in Swaziland over a weekend. Right. Until, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the weirdest place ever. We uh, even invited uh, one of the Pettinger family from France to be the guest of honor and guest speaker. Michael Fridjon was there and he led a few tastings. But in those days, you know, that was a hotel with a casino and they offered these weekend packages that was really cheap. So we, all the people from Joburg went down to, to Swaziland for the Cup Classic weekend, uh, could do a bit of gambling. And uh, it was, that was the start of something really, really great. I wanted to segue when you mentioned that you needed to tell people why they, uh, or explain to people why they were paying you know, X amount more for the uh, the Kapsafunkel. I was going to ask you, how did you market your... Because um, in my day job, when um, when there isn't a global pandemic uh, threatening the species, I usually try and sell wine and <laughs> and tell people about it. So I'm quite interested to, to hear how, how Simon Stuck and the other sort of smaller brands got their names out there. Was it, was it through competitions or... Because as you said, that um, some of the... Um, the routes to market by the merchants were cut off. So how, how did you go about doing that? Okay, well, I think definitely through our, our uh, newsletter and the fact that it was new and it was the first one, it, it attracted a lot of attention and publicity and newspaper articles. So that was one way just to tell the, the market about the, the new concept. I think the packaging was really good uh, at the time and uh, it made it, uh, stand out and then of course uh, just tasting it and showing it to to people uh, my father did a lot of traveling and, and going to tastings and the, the whole idea of, of wine shows became more and more uh, common in those days um, so and, and wine clubs started out up all over the country but you know in the 90s if I remember correctly we were just doing nine or ten thousand bottles a year I remember I was in, on holiday. Uh, I, I went fishing one morning, five o'clock, and I, I thought while I was sitting there, how are we going to sell all this? Because it was, you know, we had like eight years worth of stock. And then it dawned on me that the South African palate is actually quite sweet. 
We even put some sugar on our on our vegetables, you know, when it's made in a very traditional way, in the yes. carrots and pumpkin fritters and things like that. Yeah. So the, I thought, the, but maybe the sweet, we the sweet, the sweet to... potato with the uh, the sugar and cinnamon at the uh, <laughs> in the Afrikaans weddings that I uh, I go to. Uh, so I can't, yeah, 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 I can't yeah. deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in certain parts of the country, it's still the the way to go, you know. So it's very traditional. And I just thought maybe we're trying to be too puristic in the sense that the wine had to be very, we made it for the winemakers, you know, it was too puristic and too, too um, inaccessible almost. So started doing experiments and we decided to increase the dosage level, not by much, but maybe from three grams to 11 grams, you know, just to push it. Up. And then came the millennium and everybody said that there's not going to be enough champagne all over the world for for the celebration at that time and it was quite soon after that found that the the market is starting to appreciate the cup classic a lot more mm. and of course early on after 94 uh, it wasn't easy to to export cup classic i remember my eldest brother always said if the agents and the importers say if it doesn't say champagne on the label they can't sell it not yeah. that they don't want it they can't sell it and unfortunately, I'm glad to say that I think that has changed to a large extent, which is a big plus. And what, in, in terms of through the 80s and 90s, what was sustaining the business? Because as you said, that the Carpsofonga was only, a, it seemed like a, a pretty minor part of what you were doing. What were you mostly selling? What was, what was keeping the, what was the cash cow, so to speak? I was still wines, especially the Chenin Blanc, especially when we started uh, doing exports on a much bigger scale, Chenin Blanc was definitely a wine that uh, people associate a lot with uh, South Africa and, and still today very popular. And then, of course, I think in terms of red wines, obviously in most markets, something that, that offers good value. So uh, we had very good sales for our red blends like Cabernet Shiraz, Cabernet uh, Merlot. But obviously also uh, Pinotage was also rated and seen as, as uh, something special and true to South Africa. So we've had this very long connection and relationship with, with Pinotage and it's doing well in our soils. That's what I, I say. We, we have a lot of uh, weathered shale soils. And for me, the two varieties that really shine in soils like this would be uh, Chenin Blanc and Pinotage. And, and this side of Stellenbosch, shale soils, which is a water deposited soil, there's a lot of it and makes wines that have got very perfumed fruit on the on the nose and on the palate. And those two varieties de definitely uh, perform very well with um, on a shale soil. And yeah, initially it was it was quite difficult to sell Carps of Funkel internationally, but slowly but surely, uh, you know, we built up a market and um, also locally. I think local uh, sales uh, started growing uh, because if you think back to it, when we started the association, we had 14 guys who signed the constitution. So that now we are uh, more than 200 producers, and this is 28 years later. I think because more people are making it, it also creates more awareness. So it's yes, sure. maybe a good sign that you don't always shouldn't always fear competition. If that guy sells a bottle, maybe the next one is yours. 
Yes. So uh, from that point of view, uh, there's a lot more momentum behind it. I remember the Cutlass Seek Association, one of our early efforts was to run a, a Cutlass Seek Taster of the Year competition um, uh, to make people aware. And to, to uh, we ran it through the Cape Wine Academy mm -hmm. and we had uh, regional rounds and eventually uh, a final overall winner. And that, that's the kind of thing that we did uh, to create the awareness. And I think it was uh, logistically a nightmare, but it was really successful. <laughs> Fair enough. You can imagine the getting, yeah. <laughs> getting the tasting samples to Nelspreit, <laughs> setting up a tasting there, it was not easy. What happened, when did you start getting rid of the Palmino and the Crucian um, out of the vineyards? When I'm assuming you were the sort of the instigator of those when, when you started putting in I'm assuming Cabernet and Merlot and Shiraz and, and things like that. What was that? How did you see that? How, how did you ever see that process? The, the industry started to evolve and uh, in the early 90s, the quotas disappeared. So we, we were allowed to plant more hectares. And up to then, we had a lot of, uh, we farmed with a lot of deciduous fruit, pears and plums and okay. peaches for canning. So a lot of our land was was taken up by by fruit, mm -hmm. uh, also from a diversification point of view, um, you had to uh, what's the word if you don't have a market yet. So the you know sales couldn't really support the whole the, the whole production. Mm -hmm. And over the over the years we've we phased out the fruit and the vineyards were, were expanded. That was something that. Uh, happened gradually and as the, the sale in bottle increased the demand for certain grape varieties increased but we were still registered as an estate which meant that we couldn't uh, buy in grapes um, uh, and still retain the, the estate uh, classification and my father was sort of a, one of the initial founders of the state wine producers. And uh, so we were a little bit emotionally tied to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but eventually we got to the point that we said, gee, you know, if we want to grow and we have to rely solely on, on our own production, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a huge limitation. And then um, we started to do certain wines that had no reference to estate and other still was only uh, state-produced fruit. But there was also a rule at one stage, you must remember, I just struck me now that they said, if you register as an estate and you do want to deregister, you couldn't use your brand name for five years. Can okay? you believe it? <laughs> that, was, that was like the, a, a death knell for anybody who thought, no, I'm not going to become an estate. Um, yeah. Why would you? Yeah. Yeah, if I can't sell a book under a Simonsoft label for five years, it'll be dead. Finally, I think that one was also sanity prevailed. Unbelievable. And you've got a new, well, relatively new project at Simonsoft, maybe look, exploring other varieties again. Maybe chat to us about that and the thinking behind it and, and when the, uh, sort of the origin of, of, that, of that new project. Yeah, it's called the, the Grapesmith, and uh, there are two wines, uh, both white wine blends, uh, under the Grapesmith label. You know, we, we argued and discussed the start of a second label for many years. 
prior to this, uh, but it would have been something that would be at a lower price point, and we always uh, decided against it. And uh, so the the start of the Grapesmith uh, as a as a new brand was uh, also something that took a lot of uh, discussion and so on. But uh, my first uh, awareness of of these uh, Rhone white varieties. I got in uh, California when we visited uh, Tablas Creek, which is uh, owned by the, the parent family of uh, Chateau Castell. And I tasted the wine there that I just thought, wow, this was the highlight of my, my whole trip. Um, when, when was this? This was in 2007. And um, uh, it was a white blend. And I actually uh, bought a bottle of this because I thought I have to come and share this with my my brothers and and other winemakers because it was something that was just for me uh, a whole new discovery. And it was a, a Roussan Marsan that Rome style blend, and they were known in South Africa. But uh, some people did import some vines from from France and uh, planted it locally, but it was still very low-key, and I always thought, well, it wouldn't be available to buy uh, some of the grapes. And then um, finally I did approach um, the grower, and he, uh, I, I bought some Chardonnay and some, some Roussan in uh, 2012. And, yeah, it was just a discovery. It was a wonderful wine. I still selected a barrel for the Winemakers Guild auction mm-hmm. and then uh, also got hold of some Grenache Blanc and uh, that was the second one. But we always had a, a little bit of Verdelio planted. Also one of my father's uh, ideas that uh, he went on a trip to Australia and he tasted Verdelo in in Australia and came back and he said this is really a very fresh fruity wine and the next thing we were planting a, a, a vineyard a block of Chardonnay in 95 96 and he said but he got hold of some some vines we must just put it in the same block so we had six rows of Verdelo uh, which I think is the oldest Verdelo six rows in the country okay. but uh, so that's that's one of the uh, uh, varieties that uh, that I use but although not being Rhone it's at least Mediterranean I'd say so the the two ones the one is called the Claisenar which means the hermit in in uh, Afrikaans so that's a Roussan Marsan blend uh, so very much like a white hermitage blend and uh, the other one's called Mediterraneo so that's uh, a, a bigger blend with more different varieties still uh, Roussan, Marsan, Grenache Blanc and always a little bit of Verdello and the other one is Claret Blanche you know after you know going to Mick Craven tasting his uh, Claret Blanche I thought okay it's it's one of the varieties of Chardonnay the pop I want to try that we made a barrel or two but um, you know for me it has to make improve the quality for the wine to justify uh, itself in the blend. So I worked a lot with Claret Blanche uh, in the early years and it was never really, I knew the variety, you know, it's got serious limitations and low acidity. So, but I wanted to try it again 
panel from the internet and so on, but I don't see that as something that uh, will be part of the longer term things it's, it doesn't offer. It really impressed me. I always thought Rusan is the like the noble one of the lot, but the when I found Marsan in Stellenbosch, well, that was a big surprise. And after a huge uh, search, I, I never thought I'll get it in Stellenbosch because it's still wine of origin Stellenbosch for, for mm. the grapesmith. And um, the uh, 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 the Marsan is the one that that uh, really gives me something completely different because. You know what I, I realized is in terms of white wines, we have Sauvignon Blanc, we have Chardonnay, we have Chenin Blanc, and you know, then you sort of, and, and Riesling, classic uh, noble variety, but then you sort of run out of, of white varieties. So I see this as a, this is a complete new flavor spectrum. And uh, I also think these wines are not so much about the, the aromatics and it doesn't necessarily always smell like fruit and nuts or it's a lot about the the weight on the palate and the texture and for me because they're not so uh, fragrant and the, the nose is not so outspoken they a lot more about the the mouth feel and for that to me is exactly what you're looking for when you want to have wine with with food so it's something that um, I'm getting an incredible uh, amount of fun out of because it's not the uh, established Simon Sich profile of wines. This is where we do anything that we want to, you know, white wines fermented on the skins for a couple of days, natural ferment, put the whole bunches in the press, the juice runs directly into the barrel, then no yeast, no settling, no enzymes, and uh, just try to make something that has the personality of the vineyard and uh, be very expressive. Uh, so this is, this is something that's given me a lot of pleasure. And also now I can look back at, at wines that are five years old, and that makes me even more excited, is that that's when you get a lot more of the, the viscosity and the, the the glycerine or glycerol and the texture on the mouth, which is is really exciting. This year I got hold of some Bourboulink, as also one of the Chateauneuf varieties. Pickpool is the other one, which uh, we've ordered some vines, so I also plant six rows somewhere, maybe only two. I was always fascinated. The name Pickpool means stinging lips mm. because of the high acidity, you know, and with climate change and things we're going into the future, you know, varieties with the high natural acidity would become important in this case, maybe just as a blending component to come. That's, that's the pick pool's contribution. So that's something that we have to, I always think the wine is such a long-term venture. You know, you do something that will maybe benefit the next generation in, in our family business. I have a son who's a winemaker in the cellar with me already. Mm -hmm. And um, also some of my nephews and nieces are already in the business. So sometimes um, it's this is almost like the, the experimental farm. Although with these two wines, the first four or five years was when I figured out you can't bottle the Grenache on its own and you can't bottle the Verdello on its own. And the idea is 
almost to go back to the classics where the Klesenar is uh, is based on white Hermitage. Mediterranean is based on the on a white uh, of the pub with maybe a bit of license because they don't use uh, Marsan there and they don't. And, we're, and we're also in, we're also not in Chateauneuf the pub, so <laughs> you don't yes, have to apply by yes. those rules. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but you know the interesting thing is I I from the beginning I wanted to make a wine that doesn't contain any Chenin Blanc, okay. and it's interesting because we did. I did a wine for the winemakers guild uh, with Shannon Rusan Redox, because the Rusan was made reductively and the Shannon was made oxidatively. So that's where the Redox comes from. Mm. And uh, I soon realized that Shannon Blanc in a blend is incredibly powerful. So you have, you have to be conservative, otherwise the wine just tastes like another Shannon Blanc. It's quite dominant. Um, it can dominate. Uh, very easily. So uh, both these wines are totally without any Chenin Blanc and, and uh, the varieties are not so intensely flavored. And that's so uh, the minerality you get there and uh, the earthiness, that's what's really uh, been so exciting, really wonderful to work with from a, almost creating your own philosophy style is, is nothing that was before that determined how we should do this. No, very exciting times. And it's good to see that uh, you're still innovating and uh, moving forward and, and thinking about the future rather than, uh, rather than just in the past. So it's uh, very exciting. Johan, I'm going to call time on this, unfortunately. It's been wonderful. Thank yeah. you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it and your knowledge and your experiences. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. And forward uh, to listening to all the other uh, podcasts <laughs> you've done. Take care and stay safe. Yeah, you too. <laughs>